the best film of the year that won't win Best Picture, from heyday to doomsday. The end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is headed for extinction. Maybe so, sir, but not today. How is it possible that the highest-grossing, best-reviewed film of the year by critics and audiences that was credited with saving the film industry amid near-total collapse would not be winning Best Picture at the Oscars on Sunday, March 12th? There is no question that Top Gun Maverick should be winning. In the real world, that is what would happen. It deserves it more than any movie ever has in the 22 years I've been covering the Oscars. But will it win? Of course not. The movie that will likely win instead is Everything Everywhere All at Once, an original, imaginative film about an elderly Chinese mother, Michelle Yeoh, who must save the world by popping in and out of the multiverse so that she can eventually accept and love her gay daughter, Stephanie Su, flaws and all, and appreciate her long-suffering husband, Kihi Kwan. Some love it, some hate it, but there is no question why it has swept the season so far and is likely to win a whole bunch of Oscars on Sunday, including Best Picture. There isn't a film that reflects the woke left more than this one. This kind of winner makes the industry feel safe. They can hide behind who they really are, mostly white, mostly male, by shrinking back into the shadows, centering people of color, and voting for films that reflect the ideology of the utopians. So I rented my first movie over Xbox, and it was Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. The most pretentious title one can possibly imagine. Oh, well, it's all-inclusive. Well, if inclusive means every visible white male is simply a punching bag, then yes, it's so inclusive. Our movie stars Michelle Yeoh in one of the few roles of late which actually suits her well. Not overly talkative, because despite being here for over 20 years, her English is terrible. At any rate, Michelle Yeoh is playing Evelyn. Her coin-op laundry business is being audited by the IRS, and her marriage to Short Round is on the rocks. Yeah, that's Data from Goonies. I have not seen this guy in the longest time. Oh, we also have the pressure of an uh, old dad who lives in the basement, I guess. And, uh, oh yeah, the daughter's a lesbian, but we can't tell Pops. En route to that audit, uh, Evelyn's husband does something weird. He starts acting out of character, speaking English, puts some uh, Bluetooth earpieces in her, and uh, flashes her to uh, alternate universes where little differences in your choices have made compounding changes. Evelyn taps into the skills acquired by alternate versions of herself as she's recruited into some convoluted scheme to fight off evil. What ensues looks like a sweeted version of The Matrix, that is if you've seen Be Kind Rewind, meets Crash. Oh hey, why don't we just shoot all of our fights in an office building because it's available and uh, everybody's gonna wear crazy looking props. Uh, we hardly have a costume budget so just throw on something. Let's not get ahead of ourselves by calling this movie sci-fi. The rules just change on the fly, and I don't think anyone can really keep any of this straight. It's easily an hour longer than it needs to be. Do we really need to be called into different universes where a raccoon orchestrates a chef? 
Especially when that character doesn't have any kind of payoff, you know, tied to the reality that we're most concerned with. And I really just could not get invested in caring about different versions of characters. Jamie Lee Curtis's character, of which Evelyn has a lesbian relationship when they have hot dog fingers. Again, it's like, so what? Because the relationships we're most concerned with are going to be the actual family. As presented in the first universe we're introduced to. For several years now, the Oscars have been in an ongoing tug of war over merit and equity. It started with the rise of marginalized voices on social media, calling out the Oscars for not giving enough of their wins to women and marginalized groups. This led to big changes by the Academy to bring in new members and diversify its roster. Every year, activists would count the heads to see whether certain criteria had been met. When Trump won, it caused mass panic, that led to a kind of ongoing hysteria that targeted filmmakers via social media. La La Land was racist, so Moonlight won. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri was racist, so The Shape of Water won. Then came Green Book, where the hysteria peaked. The already declining ratings got even worse as Hollywood took a side against Trump. They just assumed all their viewers and ticket buyers agreed with them, and if they didn't, they were expendable. As Oscar ratings declined, the tug-of-war between merit and equity continued heating up, largely due to political polarization. At some point, everything Hollywood put out seemed to be in some way political. As a climate of fear gripped Hollywood, it began to infect everything from late-night comedy to screenwriting to award shows. And so, Woke Hollywood was born. It would only get worse by 2020 after the Great Awakening in the summer, by now, equity had easily beaten merit, and the public was starting to notice. They couldn't stand being lectured to by Hollywood elites, especially at award shows. And by the time COVID hit, it wasn't just empty theaters threatening to end Hollywood as we once knew it. It was also the newfound zealotry that had captured the entire industry. Prestige movies that came out in 2021 bombed. By 2022, we were all getting nervous. The Oscars were dying on the vine. Their brand seemed to be toxic. Politics, wokeism, activism had choked the life out of the film industry and the Oscars. And then came Top Gun Maverick. The only thing people knew about it was that it was good and it wasn't woke. There he was, the last movie star, Tom Cruise, doing what we've always needed them to do. Be great, be larger than life, but it was more than that. Dripping with testosterone and alpha male energy, Cruz peacocked through the movie in a way that has been mostly absent our movies as studios tried to force women into those roles to reorder the hierarchy and hack our sensibilities. But there was nothing they could do about it. Top Gun Maverick took off like an F-15. Even Steven Spielberg noticed that Top Gun Maverick saved Hollywood. Watched by millions in their prime, the Oscars used to celebrate one of the greatest things ever invented by this country, movies. The more people those movies attracted, the better they were rewarded for it by the Oscars. The Oscars mattered to the people because the people mattered to the Oscars. What is a step in the right direction for the Academy was that they have, for the first time in a while, included some blockbusters and moneymakers in their lineup. But there is no getting around that blazing number for Top Gun Maverick at a time when it was a struggle to get people out of their homes to see movies at all. 
For podcast listeners, we're looking at a box office chart with Top Gun Maverick at the top with $718 million. And when you add box office to this, we're looking at a chart of Rotten Tomatoes scores, which shows Top Gun Maverick with 96% critics ratings and 99% audience ratings with 50,000 plus verified ratings. And here are some sample audience reviews. I liked that my date liked it. It was entertaining, even when unrealistic. Stunning movie, kind of like Fast and Furious. Gave me faith that Hollywood isn't done making movies, feel-good movies. I'm sure the studio would have mucked it up if it hadn't been for Tom Cruise in the pilot seat. But he showed us what a true pro can do. Movie of the year. I've seen it four times and could go again. Meanwhile, the movie that will win, Everything Everywhere All at Once, has an audience score of 88%. Which is still good, but it ain't 99. Here are some sample reviews. It was amazing, deep, and emotional. I normally like artsy movies, but this felt like an acid trip. Too confusing, but great acting. Not for me. I watched because nominated for an Oscar, but left after an hour. Maybe because the script changed many hands, or that the idea kicked around for 30 years or that they never had any expectations of trying to please the insider cliques of film criticism or film Twitter. Whatever it was, they have made a perfect film. There isn't a single wasted moment. Within the first five minutes, you're completely invested in Maverick hitting Mach 10. Uh, Mach 10? Let's give Mach 10. Now remember, the contract threshold was Mach 10. Not 10.1, not 10.2, Mach 10. That should keep the program alive. I don't like that look, man. It's the only one I got. Control, this is Darkstar. How do you read? Darkstar control loud and clear. How me? Loud and clear. Takeoff pre-checks complete. Ready for APU start. Ready left engine start. Ready right engine start. Fellas for taxi. We are ready for taxi. Drivers, this is Darkstar. We are taxiing with information alpha. Darkstar, you're clear to taxi. Runway 21. Winds 21010. Okay, fuel temps are looking good. Control concurs. Batteries holding at 95%. Cabin pressure looks good. Control concurs. Towers is Dark Star. We're ready for takeoff. Requesting an unrestricted climb to 600 above. Dark Star, the runway and skies are yours. Rear Admiral Chester Kane. Maverick. Kane just pulled up to the gate. It's not too late to stop, buddy. You know what happens to you if you go through with this. I know what happens to everyone else if I don't. Dark Stars ready for takeoff. Everyone, go for takeoff. Starting with engine. Engine, go. Thermals, go. Fuel, go. Electric, go. Control surfaces, go. Dark Star, control. You're cleared for takeoff. Nice, sweetheart. One last ride.
located above 600, increased to Mach 3.5. That feeling you get while watching Top Gun Maverick is a familiar, distant tug at something you can't quite name. That feeling is what Hollywood used to give audiences, what they actually wanted instead of what Hollywood thinks they should want. Explained here by Louis C.K. Was Louis crying at Top Gun? <laughs> I cried at Top Gun Maverick. I did. I, I, I knew it. I knew it. I can't believe how they preserved this character and how Tom did. Mm, yeah. And brought him to, I mean, when as soon as it opens with the shots of the aircraft carrier and that, and that, and the guys pointing and all that, you're like, I can't believe they did this. I can't believe they did this. Did they really do it? And then you see Maverick with his older, but still cool arms as he's, you know, <laughs> doing this on the thing. And you're like, go, man, go. This is so. And Russell Brand explains the unifying quality of the movie to bring so many of us under one roof and share in one experience that binds us to one another in ways we haven't felt for a very long time. But what I think is interesting is you could use this movie if you wanted to as a lens to examine where America is as a culture at the moment. The problem being, of course, that there no longer is one America. America is a country that is perhaps as it has always been determined by and defined by opposition. Perhaps once America was defined by the opposition between settlers and indigenous population, then seen as opposition between the British and the, you know, the eventual victors, damn it, in the American war for independence. And then the North versus South conflict. And now this cultural war is perhaps playing out in a way that you can say that Russia got rid of czarism only to replace it eventually and ultimately with Stalinism. Perhaps there are kind of topographical, psychogeographic, cultural imprints that somehow just realise themselves. Perhaps it's in America's culture somehow to be divided. Such a vast territory with such a varied population with its coastal identities, its Midwest identities. It's a miracle that you can have a film as successful as this under these conditions. When you think of how few people ultimately vote, when you think of how few people can come together from different political perspectives and have a conversation that they can agree on. You know, if people have died in the war Democrats versus Trumpist, libertarian, right-wing folk. You know, now the only thing they could possibly get together and agree on is that Top Gun Maverick is a good film. And also is a reminder that on some sort of simple level, there are things that we can all enjoy. Is it just military propaganda? In one way, I suppose you could argue that it is. Certainly the military were involved in granting access to some of its equipment and machinery. Certainly it's true that when films like this come out, there's a spike in recruitment. Certainly it can be argued that Hollywood is the propaganda arm for the American national identity. But even within all of that, you can produce a film that can make people leave a cinema so buzzed up that they're willing to salute each other, even if they're actually in England. The best thing about this movie is that it doesn't try to fix society or shame the non-compliant or even name an enemy. It has one job, to entertain us for a couple of hours, make us feel good, and send us back into the world all the better for it, as Quentin Tarantino explains. Well, okay, normally I don't talk about new movies uh, 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 that much because uh, then I'm only only forced to say good things, all right? Or else I'm slamming some dude, you know? Yeah, I don't want to do that. All right, uh, but in this case, uh, I've 
fucking love Top Gun. I the Maverick movie. I thought it was fantastic. I saw it at the theaters. It was, as our mutual friend Brady Sinella says, it's like it. That and Spielberg's West Side Story oh, both oh. provided a true cinematic spectacle. Mm. Uh, right. The true cinema spectacle, the kind that I'd almost thought that I wasn't going to see anymore, yeah. <laughs> that didn't wasn't going to exist. The reason uh, movies yeah. were invented. And mm-hmm. it was like, uh, it, it was fantastic, but also there was just this. When I first started my Oscars website, a business I've been running for 22 years, I often used the phrase, too big to ignore, which meant a film became a cultural phenomenon, a box office success, and the Oscar voters would be forced to reward it for that. That was true of Jim Cameron's smash hit, Titanic. They didn't want to give him Best Picture and Best Director, but they had to. It defied expectations and became the highest grossing film of all time. It was too big to ignore. Now, though, there is no such thing as too big to ignore at the Oscars. They've been rewarding films that made no money, but awarded the first woman or the first black directed film or the first film made by a woman of color or the first film with a predominantly deaf cast. They've been chasing that high since Green Book won. Box office should matter. It is a much stronger measure of a film's ultimate success. The industry and the Oscars have become an aristocracy of a kind that seems to believe telling stories that resonate inside their royal court have any meaning beyond those castle walls. They don't. Their primary mission seems to be to drive propaganda to audiences, the kind of thing so many conservatives feared back in the 1940s and 50s about communism. Now it's not only happening, but it's almost mandated. They continually tinker with their utopian diorama in an effort to make it more perfect, more equitable, more pure. The Spirit Awards have made their acting categories gender neutral. The British Film and Television Academy was so plagued by accusations of racism, they mostly eliminated the privilege of their own members nominating the acting and directing categories, opting instead for a committee to handpick equitable choices. The Golden Globes were canceled after being accused of racism in a mass hysteria event on par with Salem in 1692. They are slowly scrabbling their way back after changing up their memberships and their rules. And the Oscars have an inclusivity mandate set to take effect in 2024. The already wokest of woke industry that is currently experiencing a kind of no white men for any jobs ever has in place official policy to be inclusive in front of and behind the camera for a film to even qualify for the Oscars. Every speech is either a sermon or a plea for absolution. Every win is a way to say, see, we fixed the problem. Everyone is supposed to applaud along like they don't know everyone is voting for people of color so that they don't look like racists. Is that fair to the winners? What kind of an honor is that if their main purpose is to shield voters from attacks and make them look good? This fish swallow you whole. Some of you might know that there is a Netflix short about my seeing Jaws at 10 years old called The Summer of the Shark. In it, I talk about why the movie resonated with me and with so many others in 1975. Like Top Gun, Jaws was a movie we didn't even know we wanted, but gave us exactly what we needed. The 70s were depressing for almost everyone, but more than that, we'd lost touch with what it felt like to be a winner. Movies back then were great, but they were dark and aimless. Films like The Godfather, The Graduate, and others depicted the central male hero in a state of moral and intellectual paralysis. What we wanted, what we needed, was a leader. 
We got our first taste of it with Chief Brody, doing what no one else in the town or on the Orca could do. The old fisherman couldn't bring down the mighty beast, nor could the bespeckled scientist. It was then up to the big city cop, who was afraid of the water, to take his one-in-a-million shot. The explosion at the end of Jaws was unlike anything any of us ever saw. It gave us deep satisfaction to what was not a real shark at all, but a supernatural evil impossible to destroy. Jaws turned out to be a foreshadowing of the 1980 election. It wouldn't be that surprising that five years later, America would abandon the left almost completely and vote for Ronald Reagan, whose strong leadership was something everyone, by then, craved. But Jaws didn't win Best Picture either. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest won instead. The ultimate movie about a lost man. Could the embrace of Top Gun Maverick be a foreshadowing for our future as we all begin to seek the strong leadership we've been missing? Who's to say? Maverick to range control. Entering point alpha. Confirm green range. Uh, Maverick, range control. Uh, green range is confirmed. I don't see an event scheduled for you, sir. Well, I'm going anyway. Nice. But we do know that this is the movie of the year, by any measure and beyond any doubt. If they don't give it their top prize, which they won't, then it's their loss. This film ignited something in all of us. It isn't even something that has to be explained. Just sit anyone down in front of it, and they won't be able to resist being carried away by the storytelling, the romance, the action sequences, the score, and the humanity. We had no idea how much we were missing movies like this. Good stories, well told. Maverick? Hey, you with me? I don't like that look, man. That's the only one I got. Thank you. If I don't see you again, Hondo, thank you. Been an honor, Captain. We need to believe as Americans that we can achieve impossible things. Movies can't fix us, but they can entertain us, and in so doing, make our lives a little bit better. No other country can make movies like Jaws and Top Gun Maverick. In 10 years, most people won't remember the films that were nominated for Best Picture. They barely even know what won in the past 10 years, hell, even 20. They'll look back on this year and wonder how it all could have gone so wrong that a movie people love that much was not named Best Picture of the Year. Maybe that question takes us to the inevitable answer, that once the ship hits the iceberg, it's all over but the shouting. Thanks for listening to my substack, sashastone.substack.com. And remember, to thine own self be true. My writing about the Oscars can be found at the website awardsdaily.com. You, you can be me. And I, I'll drink all the time 
Oh, nothing will drive them away 